Hey guys, it's Mara and Sincere, and today we have a special guest, Dr. Don Novotsky from the Political Science Department and International Relations Department. Thanks for being here with us today. Very happy to be here. <laughs> Professor Novotsky, what do you teach at Linfield? So I teach comparative politics and international relations. And basically comparative politics is studying the rest of the world outside of the United States, the domestic political systems. So within that, I mean, it's huge. So I've specialized over the years in uh, comparative politics of representation of women, also um, nationalism and ethnic identity, and politics and religion. <laughs> We're both in your comparative politics right now, actually. So today we'd like to talk to you about women in politics. In 2018, the U.S. midterm elections saw historic numbers of women elected to positions in the House of Representatives and the Senate. In 2020, the passing of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the nomination of Amy, Amy Coney Barrett as her replacement, and the selection of uh, Kamala Harris as vice president have all prompted discussions about female representation in politics and whether we are finally achieving equal representation. What can you tell us about the trends of female representation in U.S. politics, and how does the U.S. compare to other countries in this area? Okay. Uh, the good news is that female representation has been steadily progressing in a positive direction if you regard that as, if you regard going up as positive, right? There's some people that don't regard it as positive. But, um, so the trend has been up, and the trend has been also up in the rest of the world. The... But <laughs> I'd say the bad news is that we're nowhere near having equal mm. representation. We're still, I believe the United States has something like 22 U.S. senators. But, you know, for, but, and that's, you know, one-fifth. But by contrast, in 1992, we had two. So over the course of the years, that's been a huge gain. And similarly in House of Representatives, you know, many, many more women um, I don't know off the top of my head the number, but it is something like 20 or 21 percent, something like that. So in terms of comparing with the rest of the world, the overall world figure in the lower house of parliament is something like, or lower, you know, chamber, would be something like 24 percent. There's only a few countries that have actually 50 percent or higher uh, it used to be that Rwanda was the only one that was over 50%, but now there's a couple more, and they tend to be more in authoritarian regimes because they put in quotas for women. But the Scandinavian states have always been up there, like, well, always, in the last 30, 40 years, up there with the most. So they have something like between 40 and 50% in all the Scandinavian countries. Uh, places that have the least amount of women's representation would be I don't know why, the Pacific region, so all the islands out there, they have like the lowest, and then second lowest would be um, uh, Muslim majority states in the Middle East. They're improving on sort of the level of localities, but in national level politics, not so much. So there's a wide variation, right, a wide variation. The United States with, you know, 20%, 20, between 20 and 25%, we're actually maybe 98 or something oh, like wow. that. That's not very good. <laughs> no, it's not. Oh, it's not. So we have, a, we have a ways to go. So the reason for more uh, female representation in politics in other countries, 
what what are some of the factors that might contribute to that um, that the U.S. doesn't have, whether they're cultural, uh, cultural, social, or political? Right, right. So there are bits of all those different kinds of explanations and why certain countries have done better with that and some worse. So obviously, you know, there are cultural explanations such as the position of women, status of women, right, according to the cultural norms. And the Scandinavian countries have had a norm of egalitarianism all along. Um, so that in, in part explains it. Also, the fact that in Muslim-majority states, women don't do as well. Um, you know, obviously, the culprit would be Islam. But there are different, different interpretations of Islam that allow women to participate in different ways. So even, you know, the situation in the Muslim world, it depends on what it is, like Saudi Arabia. They just literally got the right to vote just in the last little while and um, just literally got the right to run for local councils. And I think maybe elections coming up for their parliament, um, the prince, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, has allowed for women to drive, right? And also I think they can now run in national elections, like in the next one they have. So even in that society, right, if things are changing. Um, but the other explanations would be institutional. So to the extent that you have certain kinds of voting systems, so proportional representation actually is favorable to women, especially with closed party lists. This will sound familiar from comparative <laughs> because um, parties can put on their list who they want and the ones at the top are assured to get seats. So they uh, do what's called the zipper principle, some of them, where they put a woman, man, woman, man, woman, man. And so that ensures equal representation if they get some seats in the parliament. Um, the other thing is that there's more of a push toward quotas for women. So sometimes there's reserved seats. This is true in Africa. and. Um, it's kind of by world region in a way, reserve seats, also Southeast Asia. Um, also with institutions, right, so electoral systems, quotas. Sometimes the quotas have to do with candidates so that each political party by legislation is uh, required to have a certain proportion of women candidates that they put forward. So that's another reason. So, you know, there's there's institutional reasons, there's cultural reasons, social reasons, because we know women have started to do better as far as economic status all over the world if they enter the labor force, right? Um, the, the greater the proportion of women in the labor force, the more push there is for women's rights um, of all kinds, right? So more provision for childcare, more provision for, um, you know, uh, decent working conditions, salaries, so that they are equitable, right? Mm -hmm. So all these things kind of come together. And then um, when women run for office, they have to have, just like men, certain qualifications. So the kind of pool of um, women who would be viable, right? The pool of, what do we call it, potential candidates, you know, people, they have to have more or less professional degrees, or some experience in the professional world, or, and it used to be that was 
discriminatory toward women because they never reached as high positions as, as men. Now that's less of an obstacle. Lawyers, right, judges, um, you know, we have, we're getting up there. And in fact, in graduate school, it's been the case now for a while that in most graduate programs, with the exception of engineering and tech, um, most graduate students are female. And most students in general, as you know, undergrad are female. So I think this is going to play out yeah. uh, <laughs> in political ways, you know, as we, as we keep going here. So it still is the case that, you know, women generally have to be more qualified than equivalent male candidates. And it's just because of the norm of, you know, that men are seen as better able to be politicians than women, right? And there used to be, you know, stigmas around fundraising that women wouldn't, women wouldn't be as good at it, and that's not true. They just, they do the same as men, pretty much. So when they're, you know, when things open up, women tend to do just as well as men. Like what you just said with the um, larger populations of students and under, women yeah. students and undergrad. Yeah. What do you, what do you see for that as students like us start to start our careers? Um, what are the large barriers to representation in politics in the United States and around the world? Do you see these barriers shifting in any way, and what would cause that change? Yeah, well, I mean, you would think that more women having higher ed mm -hmm. and more women going into professional work would be favorable yeah. to the pool of eligible women who might want to run for office. And all else being equal, that is probably the case. But all else not equal, for one thing, we've had this whole COVID deal where women are not as able, if they have children at home, to pursue their careers in the way that they would otherwise. That's, I think, gonna have a, make a dent. Um, also, I think the backlash, the, the kind of patriarchal backlash that's been going on with the rise of the right, you know, right wing, super misogynist, these um, paramilitary groups, neo-Nazis, they're very anti-women and they want women to be in their traditional roles. So while, and it is because women have made a lot of progress that we have this backlash. You know, I like to think this maybe is the last gasp of patriarchy, and this is really maybe politically incorrect, but I, I am waiting for the generation a little older than me and my age to like go Right into the sunset, <laughs> go out on the ice floe, yeah. right? And and I would like to think that things would be better because I think younger men, like men in your generation and a little bit older, are much more um, amenable to doing work during you know work with kids, mm -hmm. taking care of their kids. They're very involved daddies, um, you know, and that helps. It's more of a partnership. So I. I even though some of these right-wing movements certainly attract a lot of young, aggrieved males who feel like their privilege is being... Aggrieved ebbed, entitlement. ...ebbed away. Yeah. Aggrieved entitlement. That's exactly... <laughs> exactly. Um, so they're not going to go down without a fight. So I think there might be some of that that younger women now have to face. So, But I, I think that the, the trajectory is still moving forward and up for women. I mean, this is the first time that we had a real viable 
woman candidate for vice president. We had, in the 80s, Geraldine Ferraro ran with Mar Walter Mondale and, and lost. Uh, so, but she was the first woman that was actually named as a candidate, right, for a major political party for vice president. So it's however many years later, 30 to 30 years, to get to the point where someone could name a woman as vice president that has a good chance of winning. I think Mondale was running against Reagan during his, um, his oh, second well. term. That was why. And so, so was it more that um, Mondale was running against Reagan, who was incumbent, or what? Do you think that the fact that he had chosen a female vice president, did you think hurt that him. hurt him? It, it, it did. I, I am not sure. Um, I think the main thing there was Reagan was the incumbent, right? Um, and sort of the mood of the country was. It was still pretty Cold War, right. and it was and Reagan had done some pretty, you know, badass things in foreign policy related to the Soviets, and so, uh, you know, in his programs, you know, to federalize or uh, sorry, um, what he called fiscal federalism, which basically uh, defunded the states. Um, you know, no more federal money or l a lot less federal money going toward the states. All that stuff hadn't quite played out yet. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he was very popular. Yeah. And I don't think Mondale really had a chance. Uh, yeah. So, and the fact that he had a woman running with him, I mean, there were all these questions raised about her and, um, you know, was she up to the job and all this sort of stuff. You know, Could she end, take over? Could in she the take over? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Freak the hell out of people. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> How about freak the hell out of people? <laughs> you know, I'll edit it. Might be a little weird. Yeah, it, yeah, that did, and it raised all these issues about that. I mean, for a long time in American public opinion polling, uh, a majority of Americans have said that, in you know, theory, if there were a woman candidate, they wouldn't discriminate, right? That yeah. that yeah, we're ready for a woman candidate, but in actual practice, mm -hmm. that hasn't it hasn't turned out that way, right. unfortunately. Yeah. I also think that women still face double standards in terms of uh, they have they can't be too feminine, otherwise they're not perceived as strong, not perceived as able to do foreign policy, you know, not able to stand up to the other foreign leaders like like Putin or you know Xi Jinping or whoever. Mm -hmm. um, and on the other hand, they can't be too aggressive, otherwise they're accused of being you know bitchy, like, like Hillary. I think a lot of the animus toward her is because she was perceived, especially on the right, to be too masculine, yeah. you know? Um, true or not, right? There's also the factor of, in general, the sort of status of women, or the way that women are presented on the media. So like there are these beauty standards and standards of, you know, what women are supposed to be like, and while those have changed over time, they're still different than they are for men. So if a woman runs for political office, there's often comments on what she's wearing, or they talk about their grandchildren, mm -hmm. you know, or are you going to be able to be a good mother if you are on the political, I mean, they still get these questions. So I think that's sort of baked in, and I think maybe over time some of that will lessen, but I do think that we've taken a hit with COVID and, you know, with the economic situation that it is.
on that point of COVID, though, um, a lot of states that had really great, um, and I mean states as in countries, that had really great responses to COVID-19, a lot of them have female presidents, um, like Taiwan and New Zealand. Uh, New Zealand. And so what do you think the conver- – where do you think the conversation is going to turn when uh, in regards to female leadership because of how they were able to deal with COVID? That's a really good question, Mara, because because – you can see the politicization in this country around COVID and masculinity so that it's somehow wimpy to wear a mask. And even for women, there's some women who don't mask because they identify with the kind of masculinity. Not that they themselves are masculine, but they think that, that that's right. You know, to be strong is to be individualistic and to be, you know, you know, tough and to be, to, you know, take your own responsibility for whether you get sick or not, right? So this ultra, ultra, ultra hyper-masculinism, I think is really detrimental. And obviously look at what's happened in our country with that approach. You know, now our president is in the hospital. So I think with what I'd like to think with the countries that had female leaders that did well, Germany is another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, that women take, or they, they can, I mean, this is not always true, and I don't want to essentialize women this way, but I do think they are a bit more practical and down-to-earth, and that they actually, especially I think in the case of New Zealand, they're a lot more humanitarian. Like, if you think about that prime minister's response to the mass shooting they had, last year. I mean, she, she was amazing. Um, I just think that because of the practical bent, you know, and not because of the sort of ethos of care or the ethos of nurturing that women are supposed to have or the Mm -hmm. ethos toward peace. No, it's more, it's more like, what does it take to um, lessen human suffering? You know, what does it take to look at the society as a whole? rather than as a bunch of individuals. So I think there's something to that. Making empathy more of a human quality rather than... Exactly, that empathy is something important yeah. rather than, you know... Politics or yeah, things that might upset people. Exactly, or screw you, you know, I can do whatever I want. You know, I don't care about you. And, right. Right, I'm out, it's all me, me, me. This is this whole individualistic... I think it's part of toxic masculinity in this country, mm-hmm. which is also, by the way, anti-intellectual and anti-science. Yes. Which is a whole other issue, yeah. the rejection of expertise that is just coming in waves right now. Exactly. I think yeah. that's related to the, a kind of fundamental American masculinity. Mm-hmm. Are there any final thoughts you have about women in politics and where do we go from here if we want to keep this trajectory of more representation going? Yeah, going. Well, one thing I think is important is to have support in the society so that I'm thinking, for example, of the Me Too movement mm-hmm. and the Women's March in 2016 and then in 2018 where there was that whole wave of women candidates who were successful and who were actually overthrowing 
entrenched incumbents mm-hmm. and also, you know, people from the other side. It was shocking, right? Like AOC mm-hmm. and Ilhan Omar and, you know, some other people that came in as freshmen um, because they're not only women, they're also young and they're also diverse. And mm-hmm. so I think part of that happened is from the larger, more or less progressive social movements that support women and support diversity and support um, things changing, right? The status quo changing. Because if we leave it to the way that the institutions operate on their own, they don't. It takes outside pushing. So uh, I think the the House of Representatives and the Senate would be very happy to operate with the harassment rules that they had with and but they got pushed, you know, from the Me Too movement and from, you know, women, the women's caucus inside of those institutions, uh, making them change the rules by which women could report harassment and things like that. So I think there has to be ground level, right, grassroots support, women supporting women. Uh, and also, you know, making room for male allies because there's men who are totally on this side who think that women need to be better represented, right? It needs to be more equitable. So, you know, it's not only, and these changes will not only help women, they will also help men, right? And maybe help free us from some of this toxic masculinity stuff that we have going on. It's the antidote, right, to what's going on with that. So I think, um, you know, grassroots support, grassroots mobilization, I also think networking among women all over the world, doing things like this, where you have actual podcasts by and put it out there, uh, you know, from from people who are more or less knowledgeable <laughs> on this subject. I think that's a good thing. Um, in terms of the Me Too movement, uh-huh. um, you know, there's a huge movement in the United States. There's also a huge movement in China, of all places, yeah. and, you know, all over the rest of the world. And you were talking about how the Me Too movement in the United States had an impact and this kind of power that these movements that are, you know, organized online and, you yeah. know, have been criticized for having maybe, like, weak ties, in a sense. Yeah. Um, but but you believe that there's they can really be utilized and they have a lot of potential. Absolutely. Absolutely, not only in our own society, as you point out, but you know, one thing that's happened is sort of general mobili- mobilization around liberatory kinds of um, goals. So I'm thinking, you know, toppling of dictators and the protest movement that exists across disparate societies, and they get um, their their uh, tactics right and their strategies from um, other movements. And, you know, the United States, I think, with the Me Too movement, it's not that those kinds of things didn't exist in other countries, but it was a push. You know, everybody pays attention to the U.S. entertainment industry. And so in some ways, you know, the U.S. has been a a role model for that, just surprisingly, you know. Um, Yes, the ties are weak, but that's the nature of social movements, that... Um, it's kind of they're around a general kind of grievance Mm. and I think most women can agree across political divides 
that sexual harassment is wrong, mm -hmm. that uh, it shouldn't be happening, that we need to hold these people accountable who do it. Um, have you guys seen what was that with the movie? Bombshell. Yes, Bombshell. That's amazing. I have not. I have, but I. I you, you really got, want to. you got to see that. Because, I mean, these are women who were from Fox News. Right. And they were, just got sick, finally, of being harassed. Um, so it, that's good to watch. I think that's something that all women or most, most women could agree on. That this is just not right. It's unjust. And we don't have to stand for it anymore. And so that is sort of a role model thing. I mean, the other thing, Black Lives Matter. I mean, movements around Black Lives Matter have sprung up in other countries. Right. So, and I do think these protests, it's, it's less common for protests that originate in other countries to kind of show up in the United States. But the United States, for some reason, has this kind of social activism thing, of a kind of a, it's kind of a role model in a way. Yeah. Around and, some things. Yeah. And the... I really like the point you made about how you you um, stated that every everyone agrees sexual harassment is wrong, and in this very very divided country and very very divided period um, in U.S. politics, the fact that the Me Too movement it it was um, like it was politicized to a certain extent, like all issues in the United States are, but the fact that women on on both sides of the aisles or, or women just all over the world doesn't matter how you affiliate or who you affiliate with right. could all come together I think that's a really important thing in terms of having female solidarity um, especially in, in politics yes absolutely we might disagree about all sorts of other issues right but around <laughs> that I think most women would agree right um, yeah I mean there are people who would disagree with that but I you know, I don't understand them <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, joining us, uh, Dr. Novotsky. Are there any um, recommendations you have for people who are interested in this topic? Anything that you would recommend them to read or watch that could help inform them about women in politics? That's a really good question. <laughs> you know, there's this kind of, it's now sort of classic film called Misrepresentation. And it is about the way that women are portrayed in the media which then has an effect on the way that women are perceived as viable politicians. So I think it is still relevant. The person who is Gavin Newsom's wife actually produced it mm -hmm. and is the narrator, I believe. So I, we have it in our library. It's called Misrepresentation. That's a great one. Uh, oh, man, if you have not and you can bring yourself to do it, watch The Handmaid's Tale. Oh. Because that is totalitarianism based on misogyny. Right. And religiously based. Uh, Have that, you read the novel? Oh, yes. Yeah. I read her, that came out in the 70s, and I read it mm -hmm. back then. And then there was a, kind of a bad 80s movie <laughs> that they did it, they tried to do Handmaid's Tale, but this one, that the, the new one, is, is amazing. Right. Right? It's super amazing. Those are great recommendations. Yeah. Uh, so, if, so if you want to know, so some things that I'm reading now don't necessarily have to do with women in politics and gender, but um, I'm reading a really good book that explains, it came out in 2013, it's called The Unwinding, and it's by George Packer, and it's about the unwinding of the American social contract since 
maybe the late 50s and into the 70s when we started getting really bad disparities in wealth. Mm -hmm. That started right in 1979. And Reagan oversaw this huge um, split in terms of wealth, mm -hmm. right? The disparity of wealth that started under Reagan, right? Where real rate wages haven't gone up since 1979. Uh, so this is called The Unwinding, and it's about... George Packer, he's great. Uh, he writes for the New Yorker, and he does these little vignettes of all these disparate people in the United States and how it is we came, how our politics have gotten to be how they are. And even in 2013, right, this is when the book came out, so his evidence was from the 2010s, mm. right? And then Obama. Right. But then it, it's like what he's talking about is what we're having right now. We're reaping that whole unwinding of the social contract. So that's a really good book. I, my other favorite book right now is called How Fascism Works. And it's by a guy named Jason Stanley who is at Harvard. And he nails it. He nails it. Is it um, a recent publication? Um, I think it's a second printing. Uh, I think the more recent Printing is from 2017, and I think it came out, or it might even be after that, because he has a preface about COVID, I believe, so it might have been 2019, and originally maybe published in 2016 or 17, so it's just a little paperback. It's amazing how fascism works. Those are Dr. Novotsky's recommendations, so I also recommend that you check them out, because they're probably pretty awesome. I really want to thank you both, uh, Sincere and Mara, for... Uh, the opportunity to be able to talk about women in politics, it's near and dear to my heart, and uh, I hope people will learn something from it. Thank you for tuning in to Politox, guys. We'll see you next time.